Andrew Romans, based in Silicon Valley, is a successful VC-backed entrepreneur, author of two top-selling books on venture capital, former tech VC and M&A investment banker, co-founder of an angel group and general partner of both Rubicon Venture Capital and 7BC, which is a new fund focused on AI, blockchain, and fintech. In this episode, we talk about how he raised about $200 million in funding as an entrepreneur and how fundraising has changed over the years. We talk about his relationship with Ron Conway and how things have been done at the SV Angel Group, how to find the best deal flow, and pivoting as both an entrepreneur and a fund manager. Looking forward to it. This is the Future One Podcast. Hey, Joel, thanks for having, having me. Great to be here. Um, so quick background on myself. Um, I started in the Unix software industry right out of college, and I've been in tech ever since. I got into telecommunications and then had an idea for a startup, which I founded, that had $15 million from VCs and the Series A. And I'd raised angel funding before that and then got $25 million in vendor financing, which was basically a credit card to buy stuff at Lucent. That was corporate venture capital, but really tied, really fenced in uh, funding. That company went through about $100 million. And I've had a number of exits that are M&A and IPOs on the NASDAQ. So I had kind of a lot of experience as an entrepreneur where I had raised you know, in total, well more than $200 million of VC funding and managed to have exits and return that with profit. When you go through that many funding rounds, you are going to meet a lot of VCs. Some you like, some you don't, you know? Sure. And, you know, this was everywhere from Silicon Valley to New York to Boston to, you know, even the Middle East a bit and London and places like that. So then I transitioned. I mean, I'll just have to skip over a bunch of stuff. I founded the Founders Club, which was venture capital equity exchange fund. I founded Georgetown Angels, which was an angel group, pooling capital together and investing alongside with VCs, sometimes earlier, sometimes getting into late deals. Um, I brokered secondaries, helping founders of very late stage growth companies sell some of their equity, even when that was really frowned upon before it became a normal thing. And then um, I was, I was even a, I had to get under a broker dealer and get under FINRA, which is interesting because when you operate under, you know, SEC securities law and supervision, you're forced to really understand how the regulators think, which has been a huge advantage going into the world of crypto and blockchain, where there's a lot of enthusiastic people who really should study up on what the law says, because they're saying things on stage or on camera or podcasts that are like, send me to prison in a fast car, please, you know? Yeah, sure. So anyway, um, more recently, you know, the last, I don't know, seven, eight years, I've really been focused on uh, Rubicon Venture Capital, which has consistently been in top five, top 10% of performance for US venture capital. So we've done quite well. And that's operating out of a New York office that Joshua Siegel runs, and then San Francisco office, which I run. Uh, we've made some investments in London and even Portugal, but, you know, for the most part, it's sort of U.S. Canada, which is easiest for us, where we've got the biggest network to support those companies. 
that's a mix of enterprise and consumer. Um, but let me just try and get through it all faster. More recently, I've launched 7BC, which is an equity-focused venture capital fund that primarily invests in artificial intelligence, AI, fintech, financial technologies-related companies, and blockchain. We're really not investing much in tokens. Um, we have not invested purely in tokens yet. We can invest um, up to 20% with our current configuration, but we're even avoiding going into some of these because if we invest big on the equity and then the token goes up and we invested in that, I don't want to draw scrutiny to us in what we're doing. So we're really yeah. buying equity, taking a long-term company building perspective on those that have tokens. A lot of them are just AI companies with nothing to do with blockchain, with nothing to do with um, fintech. Mm -hmm. And, you know, and vice, vice versa. So fintech with nothing to do with AI or blockchain. And there's some that are interestingly covering all three, you know, they're yeah. somehow, somehow doing it all. But, you know, we, we just believe there's such a transformation. If you are not adopting um, AI, you know, and blockchain technologies in the fintech world, you know, you're, you're like in trouble. You know, sure. we could go, you know, I'm happy to talk about anything you want here today, but I mean, um, to ignore those is just crazy madness and foolishness. And um, we see a lot of opportunity as VCs to be really active in the space. And that's going to be more global. It's not going to be, you got to move to Silicon Valley to get funded type of thing. Sure. And when you look at blockchain, you know, now it's kind of a thing. Do you feel like it's going to be less of a thing just because it's going to be so native to the technology? People aren't going to be saying, hey, look at this cool blockchain database that I have. It should just be part of the integrated technology as much as MySQL or MongoDB. Um, that's, how I, I feel. Know, that's what I feel. Yeah, that's what I feel. I think I think that unfortunately, the first time most of us heard about Bitcoin, we thought, ah, oh, this is good for money laundering and for terrorists. Like, there you go. And um, And then you had all of these kind of crowdfunding 2.0, you know, crowdsource companies that were funded by retail investors without any venture capital due diligence. And so not, and then they immediately listed on cryptocurrency exchanges and then they failed to convert their Bitcoin and Ethereum, which was how they raised their capital into fiat and those went down. And so people have a kind of negative perception of it, even when I was reading an article in Forbes about how Harvard Endowment just put 10 or $11 million into a token offering, the journalists were saying, can you believe they're doing it? Because this is obviously like stupid and crazy and it's for terrorists. So even the journalists don't understand that the, the gap, the education gap here is so severe, I felt compelled to write a book about it. And then that was outdated really fast. I'm about to release sure. a second version you know, of that book to attempt to educate people. I mean, yeah. like on that topic, I'm, I'm speaking on a panel, you know, at LA Token here in SF in a few hours about um, cryptocurrencies and, and even monetary policy and what governments are doing. And I think that every single central bank will issue their own digital, digital, you know, you know, sovereign currency. So the US dollar will be digitized. You know, sure. RMB will be digitized. You know, British pounds will be digitized. It'll help them um, prevent money laundering and to understand their activity, shorten cycles on implementing monetary policy. I mean, the idea that we're going to count serial numbers on a printed piece of paper to attempt to deal with the world's problems is like insanity. 
you know, yeah. I, your point, Joel, um, the way business is done, I mean, if you just look at books, like McGraw-Hill published my first book and they say, Andrew, this is how many copies we sold. Here's your check. Sure. I say, well, I want your API from Amazon.com and Barnes and Nobles to go into Factum, a company we're backing, which then puts every single update of every book sold. I want a, I want a API into the manufacturer that McGraw-Hill uses to manufacture the hardcover copy yeah. of the book. So I can verify how many units were sold and manufactured. And when they tell me, here's your check, I have no cause to distrust them at all. And yeah. no one's gonna talk about blockchain. They're just gonna be like, is this secure? Is there sure. any way for either party to lie to the other party? And then, you know, let's say McGraw-Hill is not lying to me. And then they say, this is how many, this is your check from the Chinese, the Russians, the Italians, the Japanese, as these books go out in other languages. And they don't know how many copies were really manufactured or sold. And they even joke with me, here's your check from China. You probably sold 10x sure. more. You know, yeah. so I think that the idea that you would not have a transaction done in a way that just requires blind trust and these nice people that have never ripped off an author ever. I mean, I bet in the music business, somebody got ripped off. Yeah. Yeah, and I mean, I you know, I don't know if you remember, I sent you a copy of my uh, my kids' book. It was a book that I designed, you know. But when I initially wrote my first book, it was a healthcare book. I was going to go through one of those publishing houses, and it was, I felt the same way. I mean, it wasn't McGraw Hill, it wasn't one of those big publishers, but it was one of those companies that will design the book, you know, help you get distributed. And there was just such a blind spot as far as ownership, as far as um, you know, the pricing on buying it wholesale, yeah. when I did the math, there was such a markup. So I, I actually read a book on how to publish myself. And um, even then, there's still some pros and cons because there's still centralization because you're, you're at the mercy of Amazon. So Amazon will actually delay the time it takes to deliver your book. You won't get two-day delivery if you don't give them high enough of a commission. And that, that's what I'm dealing with now. Um, but, you know, there's nothing else. I don't have any other option, right? Because if I want to get it through that channel, I have to still depend on Amazon, but I don't want to, I don't want to decrease, you know, I don't want to increase the, the, the discount so high that my margins are so low. Um, well, you know, we can do a podcast just on that. I mean, I've yeah. experienced an awful lot and that's, that's, that's worthy of a good 30, yeah. 45 <laughs> hour long discussion. And there's probably a lot of people interested in that. Yeah, and that technically isn't really centralization. That's just, you know, dealing with a service provider, really, right? But, I mean, you still don't have control. I mean, they, they do a decent job with analytics and seeing how many, you know, were delivered. But, you know, still, I mean, so Factum, do they, do they handle some of the challenges with the publishing industry? Or are they more of a um, well, they technology? Can. They, okay. they can. You know, I'm not sure if I should disclose exactly how much revenue they have, but Sure. You know, your revenue is in the millions and millions of dollars yeah. annually, and they they have their own factoid, which is like ether on Ethereum. Mm -hmm. And I don't know the market cap. If you you can look at it, it's probably like eighty, ninety million dollars or so. Yeah. Um, and that's going to go up a lot because they 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 plug in their decentralized blockchain to any government or enterprise. So Department of Homeland Security uses them. Um, the, the, you know, in the case of uh, McGraw-Hill, they would probably be the last to do it because it would remove any ability for them to make an accounting mistake in their favor. Um, sure. which I suspect they've done, um, but 
the, what, what you could do is you can take, you know, APIs of how they're getting information of like how many books were sold today on Amazon. Yeah. And that information goes to a decentralized blockchain that's got a distributed ledger that you cannot tamper with, right? Sure. And so I would have a key to get in. They would have a key to get in. And like, I know more lawyers than they do. You know, if, if there was ever a dispute, you know, they wouldn't even dream of, of a dispute, you know? Sure. And so Factum enables any company or government or election or, or any transaction to be made completely honest beyond any ability you know, to mess about, or you, you, you need to get into the kernel root of like Amazon to start lying. And yeah. there's way in that case, you could make it impossible for, for the publisher to lie to the author. Sure. Or the author to lie to the publisher. Yeah. Or there could be any dispute. And finding great companies like Factum, you know, I mean, I think a great way you and I, you and I have talked about this. It's really warm intros and, and uh, getting in on the deal flow from your, you know, your colleagues or partners that you work with. Um, but, you know, outside of that, when you do possible outbound, you know, research, you know, what, and, and I guess, do you need to do that, you know, with, with the reputation you build? I'm sure a lot of companies just come to you. But if you are doing outbound research, you know, what are the things, the attributes beyond just team technology and market size um, that, that really makes it stand out to you when you look at a company and, and determine that it's an, an investable opportunity? Well, it, it depends. So um, I'm a big strategy guy and I like to have real portfolio construction. Mm -hmm. So at Rubicon Venture Capital, we like to see that the company has at least $100,000 of monthly reoccurring revenue. Okay. And to us, it's not like we're doing discounted cash flow valuation or anything. It's more that a lot of companies come to me I had a call with a company yesterday saying, we think we're going to hit 9 million in revenue in 2019 and we're pre-revenue as of right now because we've got this whole pipeline. And sure. I said, you know, man, I've worked, I've been an entrepreneur. I've had a lot of investments. What's likely to happen is you'll try to deploy that technology on customer number one and you're going to have to fix some things and change some things and do some things. And it may not even work. You know, you may yeah. not get, you might, you might end the year at zero revenue and really disappoint these first guinea pigs that you're operating on, you know? Sure. So the 100K revenue for Rubicon likes to show that the technology really works. We can make introductions with our network and we're extremely active in trying to drive sales for our companies that we can get them up to 500K quickly a month. And so now you're, you know, you're going from like a million to 5 million ARR bigger. When you get to 500K MRR, you start to be able to justify a big enough pre-money valuation to get that $10 million Series A out of a big Sand Hill Road, you know, Silicon Valley venture capital firm. And yeah. so the VC's funds got much bigger in response to the 0108 economic downturns that showed ventures the best place to put your money. And so the funds got bigger and they want to write $10 million checks or bigger. And the result is that um, someone's got to do what used to be Series A. So we're not alone in that, but like, that's just a strategy for Rubicon. We like to be in the late stage seed before the A. We'll fund you. We'll help you. We'll get you to the 500K. And we'll be socializing that deal right away with all of our VC friends that we've known for 20 plus years. So they're mm -hmm. tracking our portfolio. And as our companies are getting to that 500, they're getting funded. So our companies have like 100% rate of getting funded after being funded by us. Mm -hmm. And we kind of do this unpaid investment banking work for them of running a process 
and making sure they get funded by the right guys. And then um, we then double down and write a much bigger check ourselves into that Series A. So we look like we're early, but we're actually putting most of the money into these growth stage A rounds. So that's just one strategy for one firm that I'm a general partner in. With 7BC, as our fund is potentially getting much larger, um, you know, it's not done yet, but we're close to seeing a $300 million mark come in. And that makes me think we can get to 500. And I'd like to cap 7BC at 500 million. If you were to now just say, and this is where you get in strategy, get creative and do smart things. Like if you took 10% of 500 million, that's forgetting management fee, that's 50 million. If you cut that in half and said, all right, I'm going to take $25 million, which represents 5% of my dry powder. Um, you know, of course, without management fee, you could get a couple of young guys in Silicon Valley, New York, maybe somebody in London or Singapore, and they could live the dream of writing two checks a week at 50K to 150K. Sure. And we could basically back every single good looking AI, FinTech and uh, blockchain deal. We'd be at the top of every league table. The marketing value would be worth more than $25 million. If you get to, when you're doing pre-seed, the number of failures you're going to get is really, really high. But if you're doing pre-seed at scale, like Ron Conway, SV Angel, Jeff Pomerantz at Right Side Capital Management, these guys get to around 200 to 300 companies in one portfolio in a two and a half year clip of time. If you diversify, yeah. if you diversify across you know, 300 bets that are venture with high potential or coming out of Y Combinator kind of companies, you know, out of the good accelerators, you're co-investing with your buddies at Bootstrap Labs and AI, you know, you're, you're doing deal flow that Citibank is sending to us because City Ventures is not going to do the early stuff, that you're, the risk of losing money is really low. Sure. That, but the, the, the potential of getting above a 17% IRR is also mm-hmm. very much capped. You know, I've known Ron Conway for many years and looked at his spreadsheets and listened to him showing the facts of the truth of, you know, 20 years of doing it. And so I think that if you had $25 million doing pre-seeded scale focused on these categories, mm-hmm. it'd be very influential. You would have optics into everything that's out there. Yeah. You have a reputation for having, you know, hair on your chest, being real venture, not show me 10 million of EBITDA. You know, that's not venture. Investing sure. in talents here today and bragging about it, give me a break, you know? Yeah. It's, you know, you bought a second. It's like saying I bought stock in Microsoft. I'm a venture capitalist. Because you're in Uber now, boy, sure. you could see the future. So, you know, here you're getting a reputation for being that VC. But yeah. you've got post-investor due diligence. You have information rights. You've got pro rata equity rights to make additional investments. Mm-hmm. And so you get 300 horses in a horse race and you see which ones are doing better. And then you leave their next rounds with real checks, which is essentially what we do at Rubicon, but in a finite part of the continuum of seed to late stage. We're late yeah. seed to A and dripping into B a little bit. Where if the, if the fund gets as big as it might, we'd, be, we'd have this kind of 25 million pre-seed fund. And we would also be doing like $60 million scale-up checks. Sure. You know, yeah. like, like this is the security token exchange that's the best funded. Yeah. And you, so, you know, this is pre-seed, right? You see an AI company that's pretty interesting. There's like a demo, there's a demo day in New York. 
Um, what are the characteristics that you look for that, that helps you make that decision to put that small, small bet as one of the horses? Yeah. I mean, so you know, I've written three books and the nice thing about writing a book is that you can say like, Hey, that book was published in 2013. So I said it then I didn't just say it cause I heard you say it, mm-hmm. but I say that in, in real estate, it's location, location, location. Sure. In venture capital, it's management, 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 market. Okay. So you want to see that the market is big enough that if it works decently well, there's potential to at least make a 10x. And yeah. um, if you're investing late stage, you want to make sure you can see at least a 4x to mm-hmm. make up for losers and fees and make it a really attractive performing fund. Yeah. Um, so, you know, team, you know, the right team that's fit for that mission to address that market. Most early stage companies pivot a bit. I mean, 7BC pivoted. Um, that that um, if you're investing and living in a world of backing pivots, then what you're left with is the team, the technology, and the market. So we want to see that there's some unique technology. There's yeah. a lot of just pure out execution plays. We're going to buy a bunch of stuff off the shelf and get to a profitable high growth business. That's not, you know, I wasn't put in the world to do those. I like to see yeah. some real, you know, some real defensible technology that, someone's badly trying to copy. And what are some tools that you can use or some best practices for really assessing the market? You know, they, you know, there are people, as you know, that, you know, that like to inflate the market. They just talk about a general population and that's their market size. Um, What are some best practices to just accurately capture the addressable market? Best practice. So you mean, so like in the, in the practicing the black arts of being a venture capitalist, you mean like, sourcing deal flow, vetting deal flow, getting into the deal, adding value to them afterwards? Yeah, so as you're an investor and you look at a company, you think it's pretty interesting. The, the management team, they seem very experienced, but you're trying to assess if this is a market that's going to be, um, you know, bringing you liquidity in the next six, seven years when the lockup's over, right? So how do you determine the right market? Or, or do you d- develop that early on in your thesis? Is there something that you can do to kind of triangulate the potential market and potential exit, you know, um, you know, early on when you don't have much, much data to kind of help determine that? Well, I mean, I think most entrepreneurs, I mean, it's funny how these days people go through accelerators and they get kind of schooled and educated of how to, you know, have an investor pitch deck and all that. And there's books on it and I've written books on it. I think that um, it's important to show, what the company does and what's the market for, you know, buying that product and or service. And that um, this is essentially how much money we're spending a month in total top line expenses of that's probably mostly salary type stuff. And, um, but you know, these are all of our expenses and these are our existing revenues or these are our projected revenues. And this is how much money we're raising now and so if revenue stays flat or if we remain pre-revenue, this amount of funding with this operating plan of how much we're spending every month will give us this many months of runway. You know, and so some people are raising money just to get them till the weekend. And some people are raising money for 18 months or 24 months. Sure. Some are raising money with a belief that they can tip into profitability with this capital, you know, yeah. and things like that. Um, you know, and, and then uh, you kind of think, 
with this funding round, how much progress can they make in a worst case pessimistic scenario? Yeah. And uh, how much time would we have to go out and run a fundraising process after this to make sure we don't run out of money? So I tend to like 18 month plus runways because that gives the startup a, a year to really go at it and spend some money, take the risk, see, test the thesis, you know, hire some salespeople, you know, give it a shot. Yeah, and if yeah. 12 months later, it's really not working, then we can check on our options. We've got six months of cash. We could fire some people. You know, some people are not good at it. I'm good at it. I think that I'd rather save the women and children on the Titanic than say we're going to kill everybody. Sure. You know, that's my, my metaphor. Yeah. Let's at least get the women and children out off that Titanic. Mm-hmm. Um, and there's no point in us all doing a mass Kool-Aid suicide here. Yeah. So you've got six months to either fire people, change some things, pivot, um, and go out and fundraise. You know, yeah. maybe it's, it's a awesome. down if it's got to be. Yeah. No, that's great. That's super helpful. Um, But then then I also look at, you know, what's exit potential. So, you know, if I can get to these milestones and believe in it, that I can believe that there's going to be, we'll be successful fundraising, hopefully in an upward trajectory. So everyone's up on paper. Some early guys can get out or get some liquidity if necessary. And then ultimately there's a definitive liquidity event for the company that'll get us early into a 10 X return plus and late minimum of four X. And, you know, it's the 50Xs and the 80Xs and the 25Xs that really make me happy and my LPs happy. But we want to see that if the guy says that the valuation now is $20 million and we look at the market and we just can't believe no one's going to buy this donut factory for more than $200 million, and there's going to be dilution between this $20 million pre and the $200 million exit, we're not even getting a 10X on this thing. Yeah. I'm trying to share some insight of, like, why – the way people doll up their deal doesn't necessarily work for us. No, that's really helpful. And now to flip the script, as an investor raising money from LPs, um, how has that changed you know, when, you, when you raise money for Rubicon to now? And maybe you can kind of share a little bit of your, you know, your story. Because I know you were fundraising last year. You started as a blockchain fund, then you kind of pivoted to expand um, to other sectors. How did that expansion kind of help the narrative? And did that kind of help you? Um, yeah. you know, fundraise quicker? Well, well you know, I, it's funny. It's a, it's a two-sided coin or dual-edged sword. On the one hand, blockchain, if you were the right people, gets you a $100 million check. Sure. And, but with most people, I think of that far side cartoon where the guy's pushing on the door and it says pull. And it's yeah. like, hey, idiot, it says pull and you're pushing, right? Yeah. That um, there's only so much I can try to educate people about blockchain and get them off of their original reaction to Bitcoins for drug dealers and terrorists. And it looks like the whole crypto market went down. And then they they make a sentence that's grammatically, it just reveals they don't understand anything. Or you get someone after two hours, some old Japanese LP guy will say, actually, this sounds great. Like it's, you can, you can control where all the money's been for forever. Or this is so much better. And no more stealing. And, and, and then he's good to go and write a $5 million check. But then his ex Goldman Sachs buddy says, I think it might even be illegal. You should not do this. Yeah. And, and he's like, well, if just saying the word illegal, I mean, I'm not going to do it. And so someone gets talked out of it after they were talked into it. Yeah. We had these Saudis that were talking about a $200 million commitment 
and they said, can we do 200 into your blockchain fund and 200 into an AI fund that you would run? We want you to run it. And I said, well, why don't we just make it 200 and, and expand it to AI, FinTech and blockchain. I've sure. been thinking about this from the beginning. I frankly was, I would have liked to have had AI, FinTech, blockchain, but I thought raising blockchain only would be easier to raise. Yeah, sure. And I realized I'm pushing on the pull door. Yeah. I said, let's just go for the dream fund anyway, mm -hmm. because these are the topics that I think would be most valuable to specific corporate LPs, especially the banks, and are gonna drive a lot of transition over the next 20 years. That, and you um, probably don't need to be domiciled in Malta. I think that you, you know, like you were trying to do earlier. I, I don't know if you still did, but you know, that, that removes some of that, you know, complexity too, I'm assuming, right? Yeah, I think when you see Andreessen Horowitz go full FINRA, read all my emails and let's go exactly. comply with existing US regulation, the SEC is just not going to be a leader here. And I've been under FINRA and it takes up a lot of your time. It just takes yeah. up a lot of your time. If we want to get serious about doing um, hedge fund and tokens and, you know, basically we know which ones are going to pop before they get listed because we know how mm -hmm. oversubscribed they are. They, yeah, sure. Um, we would do it out of Malta. I like being out of Malta because you can, it's, it's a full member, EU member state. So you can solicit across the EU without any burden, financial BS. And yeah. so I see a lot of benefits to Malta, even though a lot of people don't see it. You know, people saying, oh, we have to be in London and we're going to die trying with the regulators. I say shame on these other regulators for being slow and reward the ones that are good and, uh, and do sure. it. At the moment, we're not pulling the trigger yet on Malta. It's probably okay. going to happen when we're ready uh, for tokens and we think the financial regulators are ready for tokens. But um, yeah. I, think I would just do it out of there or possibly Bermuda or Cayman. At the moment, we have three legal structures in Delaware, exactly like Rubicon. I know yeah. this. I know the regulation in and out, and we operate under venture capital exemptions. Sure. Well, that was really helpful. I know you got like five minutes left, so um, just let me know if you need to run. Um, okay. Are you okay on time? I'm okay on time. Okay, cool. Um, so we talked about fundraising. Um, What's a, what's a trend that you see emerging maybe in the three different groups that we, that you're covering, right? So FinTech, you know, I mean, I think that can go along with blockchain where you're tokenizing assets, right? Every stock bond, you know, currency can be on the blockchain can be tokenized. Um, that that's one idea I have. And then obviously real estate and, you know, the things that they've been talking about in 2017. Um, but with AI, right? I mean, I, I've heard about explainable AI, um, you know, beyond that, are there any other trends and things that you want to kind of keep on your radar when you look at some of these companies? Yeah, there's a company that we're investing into that's a pure AI company that um, they've written um, really smartly architected ML software that um, for pharmaceutical, you've got these people that read these reports and they can only read a couple of them a day. And these are really high wage people like, you know, 150,000 plus base salary people and they're able to without uh, much time and you think it would take a long time of working with those people to get software to do what they do mm -hmm. and it's amazing how quickly they can do it um and then even on government u.s government contracts it's it's almost like palantir 2.0 taking palantir to a whole new to a whole new level and essentially what's happening is that the software does the job of the human without paying the human and now the human can go do something using more of their brain. I mean, the metaphor is 
you're putting a screw on a Ford Motor Company assembly line wheel, and now a robot does the job of screwing in the screw. It probably does a better job, you know, than the human did, who, you know, might have had his birthday the night before or something. And the software is just better and faster. And so this sort of stuff saves so much money for the pharmaceutical company that the amount of money they're willing to pay for that software on an ongoing basis is enormous. And it's true land and expand type of stuff with the sales numbers. So we just see that company getting to, you know, nothing would surprise us on the, on the, on the multiple of billions that it could be worth and it could be acquired at any time. And I love the team, really love the team. It's a Silicon Valley around the corner from where I live deal. Um, so very excited you know, about that one. There's other ones in the pure FinTech space that if you live in, in Brazil or Bogota, Colombia, you wanna buy some Tesla stock, you'd be amazed how difficult and basically illegal and impossible practically it is for you to even yeah. buy stock or do you know what it costs to buy one share of Berkshire Hathaway? You definitely are not going to give it to your goddaughter because it's like $318,000, like $318,000. And then that thing splits in my lifetime quite a few times. But the idea of being able to buy fractional shares of $10 of Berkshire Hathaway. And I say, Joel, you, you had a kid. Here's 10 bucks of Berkshire Hathaway or a hundred bucks of Berkshire Hathaway for your daughter. Let's see what it's worth when she turns 18 and goes to college. You know, you know, he doesn't pay back. He just puts the compound of his carry right back in on the okay. balance sheet. You know, so these sort of things are quite interesting. I think you're going to see, um, you know, like Fidelity just announced that they're going to be offering trading of crypto within a matter of weeks. Yeah. But it's pros. You're going to see the user interfaces come down. And, you know, I just see a lot of activity in even AI for customer service for banks, you know, that's a big part of, you know, the only, the only thing that'll separate any company from any other company pretty soon is going to be their service. So yeah. to not have really good AI in there, mm -hmm. you know, is, is, is foolish. And, you know, do you do any outbound research at all these days? I mean, with the reputation you have, you know, I, I assume a lot of these deals just kind of come in inbound, but, you know, do you still kind of, you know, go out there, you know, and if you do, what are kind of the best channels to, to meet these best companies? Is it just going to events? Is it going on angel list? Is it? Well, sometimes uh, it's being old. Sometimes it's being young <laughs> and having a diversity. So we've got young people like, you know, yourself yeah. who's been this deal flow. And if a deal comes from you, yeah, you know, hint, hint to anyone listening to this, that means a lot <laughs> more than someone sending it yeah. to us. Um, the, we have, we have very active LPs. So we have, banks as LPs, we've got Chinese corporations that are tech companies, we've got people that are tech giants at, uh, you know, Apple and Facebook and Google and VMware and Microsoft and all over. So we yeah. have a certain amount of optics that um, a lot of people send us deal flow and then we often send it. When I see a deal that I'm interested in, I say, who can I send it to in my network that's way smarter on this than I am? Yeah. And that's like the first thing I do, you know? Um, and then, in a, you know, if my buddy at VMware says this is a good software defined networking storage company that we would actually want to buy, you know, there's a lot of kind of back channeling. I know the head of M&A. If you read my second book is Masters of Corporate Venture Capital. Yeah. Most of those CVCs were born in the M&A corp dev team. 
Sure. And so I know the head of M&A and Corp Dev at a lot of places. And, okay. you know, I won't send them the deck, but I'll say, what do you think about this? Mm-hmm. You know? And they might say, oh, musical chairs, there's no tech. We even know the company. It's amazing how a lot of uh, big corps already know the company when the VCs think that they're first. Yeah. Um, so I think just developing a network where you do a lot of good karma favors for other people, that's the magic dust that creates a lot of success. So if I do you favors when you need them, you're more likely to do me a favor and people that are knowledgeable people helping each other is a good thing. And that's the ecosystem. Yeah. There was a time, you know, I used to do this um, freelance work, just kind of helping people build apps. And I remember I met somebody at an event and I just kind of would help them all the time, just give them a bunch of free advice. And uh, they ended up, you know, getting screwed over with, you know, a vendor that they worked with. And I was like, look, I can just do it for you. Um, yeah. And I, you know, that ended up turning into a business deal. And then they introduced me to like a lot of their friends and um, you know, to your point, right. It's, it's a small community. Um, you know, even with New York city being pretty big, it's still a small community. You see the same people at these events. Yeah. Um, yeah. You know, I, you and I probably bumped into each other at a couple of these events. I mean, I think you pinged me a few times when you were, when you were up here. So um, it's definitely, um, it definitely goes a long way to go to these events in person. And then Joel, I've got an entrepreneur waiting. I got, I got an entrepreneur startup. I got to meet right now. So all right, we're running the story firsthand from him, but thanks so much and happy to do this anytime. Yeah, no problem. Thanks, Andrew. Appreciate it. Right. Bye. 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 Bye.